This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Up first, we bring you stories of international importance. 5,000 miles away from their home in Syria, a family now living in Fremont hopes to return soon. Then we bring you reactions to the election of the new pope. And we ask an expert what he thinks of a $1 billion missile defense system in California and Alaska. Five thousand Syrians escape their war-torn country every day. Farah al-Saati is one of them. When violence escalated near their home, Farah's family packed their bags and fled to neighboring Lebanon, leaving behind their ravaged city of Homs. Over one million Syrians have fled their homeland since peaceful protests turned into bloody battle two years ago. Farah's husband secured a tourist visa to the States last year. Once on American soil, he hired a lawyer, successfully applied for political asylum, and flew his family to safety, to San Francisco. The family of seven is unique. They are among only 89 Syrians admitted into the country under political asylum since September. The United States doesn't set a quota for asylees, but conditions of entry, like passing a screening test, heavily limit the pool of applicants and those accepted. Farah and her family are adjusting to life here. They're grappling with the language and still awed by the quiet at night. But they're monitoring the news constantly, hoping for a sliver of good news every day. For CNS, this is Yusur Al-Hilu. It was the first Sunday following the election of Pope Francis. Mass continued as usual at Oakland's Cathedral of Light, and many had thoughts about the new Holy Father. This is a great guy. He's very intelligent, uh, very well-educated, has a, a good track history in Argentina, uh, leading the church there. He's a humble person, qualified, but also a person that gets things done. The Archbishop began his career in the church over 50 years ago, when he was ordained in Rome. He hopes Pope Francis will be able to convince the Vatican to give more responsibility to the bishops worldwide. If somebody's going to be second-guessing everything I do or every decision I make, that's not a really good thing because they don't know the situation. They don't know what the needs are. They don't even have an idea what's here. And so I think we need to put back again the responsibility where it belongs on the local bishop. But parishioners following Sunday's Mass were less concerned with Vatican politics and more interested in Pope Francis the man. 
I was very much hoping that it would be someone who would take into consideration the whole church and the example of Jesus in terms of what the church should be about. And I am very happy with him. I'm excited that uh, a Latin American was named Pope. That's the first time. Uh, I'm a little discouraged that of his age is 76. He only has one lung. And on the negative side, I'm discouraged uh, that they picked a man who's very doctrinally conservative. Being a humble man and a very prayerful pope, I'm sure he's going to uh, to put the church back on the right track. This is Sean Havey reporting for CNS. The Department of Defense last week announced that it will be adding 14 new missile defense installations in California and Alaska following tests by North Korea. Former Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration, Harold Smith, says the $1 billion project is a waste of money. This is high-stakes poker, where deterrence is the name of the game, prestige, bargaining chips, things like that. But as far as them launching a missile and our defending against it, both are very remote, uh, remote possibilities. Smith says even if North Korea had the technology, it is unlikely that it would attack the United States. Put yourself in the North Korean shoes. If they develop a warhead that's small enough to go on an ICBM, and if they develop an ICBM powerful enough to attack the west coast of the United States or Alaska, and if they launched that weapon, and if it went off, that's the end of North Korea. The United States would for sure, and I think aided by many, many nations, eliminate that, that regime. Despite widely held beliefs that missile defense systems are effective, Smith says the project is still in research and development. The technology just isn't there yet to successfully intercept a missile, uh, particularly if it's carrying a nuclear weapon. You can't afford to miss. With adequate research and development, Smith says missile defense systems would be more useful in the future. I am not saying that we should not continue impressive research and development in missile defense. It's a worthy subject. It's just not there yet. For CNS, this is Tawanda Kanema. Our next three stories bring things a little closer to home. First, the Cal women's basketball team reacts to its ranking in the NCAA tournament. Then we examine the final fate of some homes that foreclose. And finally, a nonprofit helps take some pressure off high school girls on one of the most memorable nights of their lives. The Cal women's basketball team got some good news on Monday. They learned they were the number two seed in their region for a bid to the NCAA tournament, putting them on the path to become national champions. They learned the news at a selection watch party held at Memorial Stadium, where ESPN unveiled its annual tournament bracket. But then the unknown became real. I, I didn't even think it was going to feel this good because I didn't think about it. There's so much unknown. You don't know, are we going to be this? Which, where are we going to be? So 
we did not know so we saw that it was genuine like wow just really just uh we were really proud and um very excited that we got the respect that i think we um kind of earned this year although the lady bears fulfilled the high expectations this season for the first rams 40-year history the Bears clinched the Pac-12 conference title in March. I just love coaching this team, and I love enjoying the journey with them, and, and this is fun. It never gets old. You know, I had butterflies all day, even though I knew that we were in, um, and it's really just helping the players enjoy this kind of moment. This year's bracket features a familiar arch rival, Stanford. Depending on how the tournament plays out, the two teams could face each other. The Bears defeated Stanford earlier this year in Palo Alto. The opportunity arises to meet Stanford. That means we're in the Elite Eight, which would be great. Um, and at that point, we'll worry about Stanford. The Lady Bears will play this Saturday against Fresno State in Lubbock, Texas. For CNS News, I'm Ashley Griffin. I'm standing here at the corner of 2nd and Chancellor in Richmond, where a longtime piece of blighted property is finally coming down. After years of abandonment, City Code Enforcement Manager Tim Higaris secured a warrant through the court to demolish it. It's unfortunate that we have to face this type of challenge in our neighborhoods. However, um, we're here to, to do what we need to do to clean up our neighborhoods. Abandoned for the last five years with a mounting mortgage, Wells Fargo will soon foreclose on the home. The price tag of the demolition is about $20,000, all covered by the bank. But for some, demolishing the house only solves part of the problem. Because if they make a demolition on this burn house, they will want to make empty space, and empty space is more garbage. There's little left of the one-time home, a singed frame from two fires caused by squatters. Since then, it's become nothing more than a dumping ground. Some in the neighborhood were happy to see the house go. Thank you to the city guy, you know, the guys, they work. I see the guys, they're driving almost every Monday to come to clean it up. Higaris says he hopes this demolition is the first of many. He's created a list of the top 100 blighted properties in Richmond, and he hopes the city will demolish at least four of them soon. Under the city manager's direction, uh, trying to figure out a way to do this, demolish, acquire, rehabilitate, or just compel the owners to comply with the city's laws. For CNS, I'm Rachel DeLeon. I bet that looks amazing on so let's try this one. Coming from a low-income background, and you really want to get a dress, but like, because of financial problems, it's really hard. Prisons Project really like gives girls like me an opportunity to like try out and get free a free prom dress. The volunteer-run Princess Project is a half-hour shopping spree for girls like Sammy Chen who can't afford a prom dress. I also had to like save up my own allowance to like in order to go to prom. We also have to save up for college, and like we have to sign up for scholarships. I'm like a kid. In the last 12 years, the nonprofit has given away thousands of dresses to girls in need. Ooh, that is pretty. Really, we're based in the principle that every girl should be able to celebrate with self-confidence and style. I knew a girl who needed a dress for the prom, and so I sent an email to about 20 friends trying to find like a gently used dress, and I ended up getting like 500 emails. The group now collects new and gently used dresses from donors across the country. On a few days in March, the girls get to go shopping with volunteers personally tending to them. This is going to be fun. So excited. Do you know what size you already are? They get to 
um, be treated like anyone would be treated in any of the finest stores. Um, a lot of them haven't experienced that before, so we want to give them an experience where they're treated with utmost respect and dignity. It's long and simple. You can like wear it anywhere. It's, I think it's really pretty. This is Avni Nichaban for CNS. Our last segment brings you stories from your own backyard. We begin with a group of elder African American men who give some high school boys some good advice. Then we'll go to a music and dance center that was shocked by a violent robbery. And will bikes be allowed on BART 24/7? We take a look at where things stand. Drummers come out of Africa. So back in the day, our ancestors used to tell stories through the drum, talking, and they were called griots. They used to keep our history. We didn't have to write down stuff because they would just remember it in their head, and then they would sing the song, and they would rap the lyrics to the younger kids. Today's world might be different than the past Quinnen describes, but the message he's trying to spread is the same, and he's not alone. This group of intergenerational African-American men met today with boys from local high schools to discuss aspects of manhood, ranging from basketball to how to maintain healthy relationships. On this clear Saturday morning, these men worked with over 20 boys to help steer them away from the criminal activities found in their communities. Patrick is one of those boys. Say somebody like a teacher's son try to talk to you and see what's wrong with your son. They don't know what's going on. They're not from the neighborhood or nothing. So they just they just give you some little boo-hoo or tell you to tell you to do like go to a YNCA or something like that and a Parker son. They don't know what it is. But these people who's here right now, they they know how it is and they know they know exactly what to tell you. Relating to the boys in the safe space helps build trust between the two generations and fosters good communication. The group has built a hierarchy around this idea. We have the this group, then we have uh, Brother Manhood, we call them, that is the, the, the group in the middle. Then we have the Warriors group. The Warriors group is the one that um, is organizing today's event. The unnamed group started over two years ago, and the volunteer mentors come from diverse backgrounds. An acrobat works side by side with the high school teacher. There are different, different kinds of mentorship. So this is this is this is one version of a mentorship, whereby the warriors uh, get together with the age group that are younger than them. In this case, uh, majority of the students come from my Clements High School, so they are high school students. Warriors keep the boys active and engaged, and it's more of a discussion than a lecture. How many of you guys? can practice abstinence for a whole year on this side. If you can practice, if you can have... The group doesn't have a concrete schedule yet, but they say they're hoping to have similar events whenever time and resources allow. This is Tiffany Neely for CNS. It's hard to believe that just one day ago, this happy scene at Ashkenaz Music and Dance and Community Center was the location of a robbery and shooting. It was especially surprising for first-time patron Jay Hartman. Uh, there are some balloons floating around, and I think a lot of people thought maybe one of them popped, and then there are you know, several more gunshots in quick succession. Everybody realized you know, it's, it's serious. Around midnight on Saturday, two men stole money from the door and cafe cash register during the center's 40th anniversary week celebrations, which started Thursday and continued through Sunday. 
the men shot two employees. A shooting at a place that promotes peace and cultural acceptance came as a shock to many. I'm disappointed that we all just can't get along and, you know, I just wish we all would just stop the violence. Our theme for the 40th anniversary is celebrating and dancing for peace 40 years. So um, we were terribly distraught over the incident that happened. This incident brought back memories of the only other violent act at Ashkenaz, the shooting of its founder, David Nadell, in 1996. Nadell was shot by a drunk patron. It was an opportunity for some elders in the community to come out and say, hey, you know, this is exactly what happened to David. Despite what happened, many people came the day after to enjoy what Ashkenaz prides itself in, music, dancing, and community. Every time you pass outside Ashkenaz and it's closed and you watch from the sign on the road, you feel like you're dancing, just from the sign. It's just fun, you know, I love like just the, the, the building. There's a dance floor and yeah, I love that it's open to, to children. Both shooting victims are recovering and have insisted the show must go on, especially managing director Larry Chin. He just wants everyone to go on and, you know, continue doing what they're doing. We are continuing with the celebration um, and thankful to the community for their outpouring and their um, well wishes and prayers. For CNS, this is Deborah Silva and Lauren Kawana. It's day four in a week-long test to see if bikes and people can peacefully coexist on BART. This is our second Bikes On Board pilot, but we know more and more people are going to need to take BART to get around, so we're trying to figure out how to get people to and from our stations. Many cyclists are happy about the test. Everyone's been really great, particularly in the East Bay. There's very few people on the trains on this side, and to limit the amount of bikes on really doesn't make any sense. But racks remained full despite the opportunity for cyclists to take their bikes on board. Because my place of work is within a half mile of the BART station, and so the hassle of taking the bike onto the train and you know down the stairs, up the stairs, you know in and out of the station and through the gates, um, you know it's it's a five minute walk from BART to where I work. And there are other problems. At rush hour. Uh, bikes are an issue. Uh, there's just no question about it. I mean, when everyone's trying to crowd on a train and uh, the fold-up bikes obviously are a lot easier than the full-size bikes. Um, and if there's a disabled person who happens to need that same space, that's generally where the bikes need to go. Bot officials are asking for online responses. We're asking all of our passengers, bike riders and non-bike riders, to complete a survey, which is up on our website. So what else could Bot do? They might also want to consider a car just for bikes, where they have removed the seats to make it really, really amenable. For CNS, this is Sarah Phelan. And we'll wrap up this week's show with two stories of recovery and innovation. First, cancer survivors in the East Bay are in for a treat. And to finish off our show, meet the Oakland man who's given urban farming a facelift by reimagining the old chicken coop. When Geraldine Rubin was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2010, she faced a two-year uphill battle against the disease. I kept saying, are you sure? Are you sure? You know, and she said, I'm sorry, yes, you know, but what can you do but face it? She beat the illness. Now, she's sharing her experience with other cancer patients and survivors to help empower them. It was no picnic. 
but I was darn if I would let it take me down. I said, no way. I love life too much. I got things to do, people to see, and place to go. The oncology team at Doctors Medical Center honored Reuben and other breast cancer survivors as part of the center's inaugural survivorship celebration. When we can find resources to help um, individuals to make that transition easier, that makes a huge difference. Doctors say that for many survivors, getting ready for life after cancer means feeling good inside and out. That's why this event offered free makeovers, hair, makeup, and manicures, all donated by local stylists. How we look to the world um, is tied in very much with how we feel about ourselves as individuals and how we consider ourselves as either healthy or as sick. Fighting her way through chemotherapy and radiation, Ruben said she didn't feel or look good. She lost a lot, including her hair and part of her breast. But now... I sometimes forget that I had cancer, you know. So what if you have half of a breast, you know? But I have life. That's the ultimate gift that you can ever have is life, you know, and you hang on to it. Reporting for CNS, this is Rachel Witte. I was kind of sick of living in, like, drafty Bay Area houses. Matthew Wolpe built his 104-square-foot home for about $6,000. It's on the tinier side of tiny. But it's the even tinier homes he builds for chickens that have gained national attention. This coop is called the Coopsicle. What began as a school project turned into a hobby and eventually a how-to book for coop enthusiasts. I was like, oh, this is really fun. It's like a small house, but you can finish it in a few days and lots of design possibilities. As urban agriculture grows, so does the interest in raising hens. I like chickens because they have like a little hum of productivity and um, and they're pretty easygoing and they give you eggs. When you eat the food that you produce, it brings you closer to the to the the process and I think people are alienated from you know, big food. Wolpe's love for design brought him closer to food and the sustainable living community. A lot of people are into chickens. It always surprises me. I'm like, really? You're into chickens? They bridge a lot of different people together in a way that I didn't expect when I started. For CNS, I'm Justin Pye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.